Dirty History is produced by Muckraker Media. So, if you value this show and podcast in general as an educational resource, please consider passing it on to another person. The best way we can spread is by word of mouth. That said, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on whatever platform you get this show on. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get the show, please subscribe and review. The same goes for Muckraker Media. If you like this show, there are others on the network tailored to your interest. Go check them out. MuckrakerMedia.org. M-U-C-K-R-A-K-E-R Media. This simple act, four minutes of your time, will help the show more than any dollar amount could, and it will help you curate a podcast feed you're proud of. So once again, wherever you get Dirty History, please subscribe, like, review, and be sure to check out Muckraker Media. With that, on with the show. In this episode of Dirty History, I sit down with Jonathan Haber, an educational researcher and author whose latest book, Critical Thinking, was released April of this year from MIT Press, while his first book, Critical Voter, will be re-released this month, which seems rather timely to me. This was one of those episodes where I went through the edit twice, not because I had to, but because I was taking so many notes on my conversation with Jonathan. I hope you find this podcast episode as rewarding as I have. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is featuring the We're live. So I'm um, sitting down with Jonathan Haber. Thank you for coming on. Thank oh, it's so great much. to be here, Thomas. I recently uh, read your new book, Critical Thinking, and that's partially why I um, asked you to ha- come on and have a discussion. And that that comes from the fact that I am, I guess the word might be anxious or it's, it's that feeling where you feel like you're the only person who's raising the alarm out of everyone you know, and you're wondering why no one else is making such a big deal about something as you are. And, and that's that I feel that the greatest existential crisis facing us right now is not, not going to be climate change, not the rise of disinformation. It's not, you know, the great equalizers of war, famine, or pestilence, but that our inability to cope with these things in the 21st century due to our woefully inadequate critical thinking curriculum in many public schools is at root the the thing that concerns me the most. And I, I know that's rather that's rather dour and it's a great way to start a conversation in a podcast. And we've probably already lost a few hundred people. But um, as someone who's done loads of research on in and around critical thinking, where do you see its place in our current education system? I mean, are you as pessimistic about it as I am? You know, well, I'm sort of a a kind of glass half full kind of guy. I mean, first, you're absolutely right that, you know, the problems we face, whether, whether it's environmental or COVID or kind of political breakdown, uh, you know, these problems or similar problems have been around for centuries. What, you know, gives us an opportunity to deal with them as our ability to think them through, which really means thinking them through critically. And I think you've hit on it that what does it mean to think critically, not just about like how to deal with COVID or the next election, but even simple matters, you know, where to go to college, um, what car should I buy? You know, there is a set of skills called critical thinking that, uh, originates from a variety of fields, from philosophy, from science, et cetera. But, you know, there is a set of skills that are learnable, 
and masterable by anyone. And we really have not figured out a way to uh, not just teach them to kids in public schools, but also teach them generally to kids and adults in any educational environment, K-12, private, public, higher education, or make them part of the norm of, of our society. Uh, and as a result, we don't approach our challenges through systematic ways of thinking. So mm -hmm. I'd say, you know, the yeah, I know you, you teach in public K-12, that certainly has some challenges um, in it, but so does every other aspect of society. Yeah, and, yeah. And, eager to sort of, uh, you know, alert you where the glasses half full or half empty in all these areas. Would you agree then, or were you getting at this point that the reason why it's so hard to integrate critical thinking into a curriculum is that there's this widespread myth that there's no one single definition for critical thinking. Cause I hear that reason rationale a lot. Well, how do you teach something when they, no one really knows what it is? And I'm like, I feel like there should be a a definition that most people at least agree on. Am I, am I wrong in thinking that or? Well, you know, I mean, I, you're not wrong, but I think you're possibly struggling with the same issue that, uh, that personally I think has kept critical thinking from becoming more mainstream for several decades. Uh, there's a confusion and this is why I wrote the, the, the book. This is um, uh, part of the MIT essential series on mm -hmm. critical thinking and the MIT essential series is, designed to give everyday readers, right, non-experts, an understanding of a complex topic, be it yeah. in technology or philosophy. And so in the, in the course of writing one on critical thinking, I felt like, well, there's a lot of how-to books on critical thinking. There's textbooks, you know. Um, I've written a how-to book, you know, myself um, uh, that's about to be re-released for the 2020 election. But, but the MIT book was really designed to deal with the three great myths, that critical thinking, we don't know how it's defined, Right. So we can't agree on what it is. And mm -hmm. like you said, if we can't agree what it is, we can't do anything about it. But also that we don't know how to teach it. And um, also to an extent, we don't know how to assess it on the topic you brought up that we don't know what it is. Well, you know, I, I'd say there is a lack of a consensus wording that if you asked critical thinking scholars or critical thinking educators, OK, let's all sit down and come up with an exact wording of what critical thinking is, then then, yes, you know, probably people would struggle to come up with a consensus wording, you know, but I would say people would struggle to come up with a consensus wording of biology these days. Yeah, so yeah, when, yeah. when I was growing up, biology, learning biology was similar to learning a language, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it was very descriptive. Now it's much more computational with the introduction of, of all we know about the genome, you know, but we haven't stopped teaching biology as we struggle with the definition, right? We don't need an airtight definition that everybody agrees on. Uh, in order to move forward with a teaching project, say the biology project. In the case of the critical thinking project, you know, there actually is a reasonable consensus, right? In the, in the book, which you read, I mm -hmm. did not simply like take all the definitions and try to come up with some consensus wording or pick a winner. No. You know, I instead looked at the genealogy, right? Where does the very concept originate that there's this type of thinking so distinct that it could be called critical, right? It's different than wisdom. It's different than intelligence. It's this thing called critical thinking. And of course it has origins in very ancient uh, fields like philosophy, particularly ancient Greek philosophy. It also has origins in sort of early modern science 
um, in the sort of period of Newton and afterwards. So there's definitely like historic uh, precedent for it or, or things that fit into it. But so also modern things like psychology is part of critical thinking. Most recently, cognitive science is part of critical thinking. Um, and if you look at how everyone talks about critical thinking, it really does sort of, of end up at a consensus model, not a consensus wording, but a consensus model. Critical thinking is part of a three-part model. Uh, one part is knowledge, mm -hmm. um, one part is skills, and one part is dispositions. So to give you an example from one of the, one of the elements in the critical thinkers toolkit is organizing your thinking, right? That's mm -hmm. normally done through a process called logic, right? Yeah. Doesn't yeah. mean you must know symbolic logic or any particular kind of logic. You can use formal or informal logic or one of the graphical forms of logic, but you need to systematize your thinking. You need to think logically. Okay, and so you need to know the rules of some logical system. Okay, so that's knowledge. But then you have to be able to apply that knowledge in various situations, right? I can logically analyze a newspaper editorial. I can logically analyze an advertisement. I can logically analyze a conversation that you and I might have, right? And there's lots and lots of different things you could apply logic to. So you need the skills to be able to do that well. So you need practice at applying the logical principles. Okay, so that's skills. The third piece is dispositions, right? You need to want to think logically, right? Not just about things that you want to challenge, like an opinion you disagree with, but also about things you might be inclined to agree with, like an opinion you believe, right? You should subject those to logical analysis also. That's a critical thinking disposition, one of open-mindedness. Um, so those three pieces taken together, knowledge, skills, and abilities apply to you know, a, a handful of skills in the critical thinking tools kit. That's enough, right? We don't, not, we yeah, don't yeah. need to come up with a consensus agreement on everything, right? We could debate what's the role of creativity in critical mm -hmm. thinking, right? That's a worthwhile debate. It's not just an academic debate, but the teaching of critical thinking doesn't hinge on making that decision. We understand yeah, yeah. there's certain principles and we are ready to sort of go ahead with it and teaching the knowledge, skills, and dispositions, then the critical thinking project can go forward. So, so it's not it's that not so much, as you said, there's not a consensus wording, but there is in fact a, there's a few core concepts that most everyone would agree on. So if I want to apply these into, into a classroom, into, if I want to teach critical thinking skills, must you go back to its many origin points? Do you need to teach a whole course on rhetoric or logic, or can you can you integrate it into an already pre-existing curriculum, you know, into a content area? Or is that a prerequisite? Must you have a base of knowledge to then apply critical thinking skills to? This is a great question. And th this gets into that sort of second myth that we don't know how critical thinking should be taught, mm -hmm. right? And, and, you know, this is based on, on relatively recent research, so it's not definitive, but um, there, there's a lot of evidence uh, to support a, a theory that another critical thinking researcher came up with more than 20 years ago, uh, uh, Professor Annis, uh, who proposed that there's three ways to teach critical thinking, right? There's a general approach to critical thinking, which is you have a course just on critical thinking, and you pull in information from the news or science or whichever for examples, but the course itself is on the critical thinking tools to get like logic, rhetoric, et cetera, rhetoric, et cetera. And that's largely how we teach critical thinking in higher education, right? Um, I don't know about when you went to college, but many colleges have a critical thinking course, mm -hmm. often taught by a member of philosophy department, and that's where critical thinking is taught as a standalone subject. Okay, then 
there's, and that turns out to be the second best or second worst way to teach critical thinking. <laughs> um, there's two ways to teach critical thinking integrated into the curriculum, okay. right? There's a, a method called immersion where you teach a complicated subject, a complicated subject requires students to think, and you assume critical thinking is learned through osmosis, right? Mm -hmm. That is the main way we teach critical thinking in K-12, okay? And that turns out to be the worst way or the least effective way of teaching critical thinking, because as it turns out, critical thinking is a distinct set of skills, right? Yeah, it seems inherently flawed to assume that you're like going to implicitly teach critical thinking that they'll just get it. I feel like is do you have to make someone aware of the thought process for it to truly be an effective way of teaching critical thinking? Well, and that's where you get into the sort of the most effective way is a method called infusion, but you still integrate it into the subject matter, but you do so explicitly. The example I use all the time is like a math teacher who's teaching geometric proofs. Well, geometric proofs are a perfect example of deductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning is an important critical thinking concept. But how many math teachers stop and say, okay, we've just learned geometric proofs. That's an example of deductive reasoning. Let me explain to you what that is. You know, and then they can compare it to perhaps inductive reasoning, which is the primary form of reasoning used in science. And that would give you a connection point to a science teacher who might want to teach you about inductive reasoning. You teach, I think, history and English, is that right? Oh, U.S. history and geography. And geography. So you're yeah. teaching argumentation, mm -hmm. right? And But most of your students are probably using uh, outlines to write their paper, you know, Roman numeral mm -hmm. one, mm -hmm. type, you know, um, thesis point, et cetera, you know, uh, one, two, three, et cetera, point, 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 which is a perfectly reasonable way to organize the sequence of your writing, but it's not a good way to organize the logic of your writing, mm -hmm. right? To organize argumentative writing, you want to use something like informal arguments or argument map, where you actually are explicitly spelling out, okay, here's my evidence, you know, here's my conclusion that I want you to believe. And, and outlines have that most teachers understand there's evidence and, and there's a conclusion that that evidence leads to. But what's missing is the concept of what links that evidence to that conclusion? In philosophy, it's called our argumentation is called a warrant, right? But but people aren't teaching. Okay, explicitly, we need to find that linking connection, that warrant, reasons to believe something. So a way you could sort of move from sort of teaching argumentation as like collect your evidence, you know, support your conclusion, is to construct an argument or construct an argument map, for example, where they must explicitly spell out not just what their evidence is, not just what their conclusion is, but what are the reasons leading from their evidence to the conclusion. If you're doing informal arguments, you could also ask them, okay, well, you know, is your reasoning valid? You know, well, what does that mean? You know, how many teachers bring up concepts of validity? You know, well, validity, logical validity is a very specific thing. Validity means... If I accept the conclusions as, as true as true, must I accept? If I accept the premises as true, rather, mm -hmm. must I accept the conclusion? If you can reject the conclusion after accepting the premises, your argument is invalid. You know, but but that's not part of the curriculum. You know, it's not part of academic standards, and mm -hmm. it's not that tough. It's like you don't have to teach that every single lesson. Just the same way the geometry teacher doesn't have to teach. Uh, deductive reasoning with every math lesson. There's just certain key points in the curriculum where it's highly relevant. And that's the point where you infuse it into the curriculum rather than just assume it's coming along for the ride. Which I think leads me to the next point. 
going back to your book, you use, uh, you use Richard Allum and Giuseppe Ross's book, Academically Adrift, to note that gains in critical thinking, complex reasoning, and writing skills are largely missing in the first few years of undergrad. But at the same time, large swaths of college faculty would admit that critical thinking development is a primary goal of undergrad. So then, like, what is the what is the disconnect? Why why are critical thinking, complex reasoning, and writing skills something so many scholars, uh, so many schools rather, want, yet they don't seem to be making meaningful gains? Does this go back to the the myths around not knowing how to teach it and not knowing how to um, define it, or is it something else entirely? I, I think it's the exact same phenomenon we were talking before about K-12 public school, but it also implies to K-12 private school, charter schools, and certainly higher education. I think they're all working off the immersion method. And, and it's understandable, right? Because you have smart teachers in K-12, you have smart you know, college professors, they're teaching complex material often to intelligent students. And so the the assumption is, well, you know, uh, critical thinking is just coming along for the ride. You know, they're all teaching through immersion. You know, you are, college professors are, um, they're not sort of understanding that critical thinking is an explicit set of skills. Mm-hmm. So it's the knowledge that needs to be taught. The, 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 the parallel I like to use is like, if anybody said, well, why are we bothering to teach students math? Right? They're going to pick up all the math they need if they t- study physics. Let's <laughs> like just teach them physics and math will come along mm-hmm. for the right. Everybody you know, that would be nuts, right? Yeah. And, and you know, the, the proof of the pudding is, is actually like mathematical, right? Um, or statistical. You take kids who've gone through 12 years of K-12 and four years of college, maybe even more, and you ask the teachers and professors, what's your top priority? That one of the top priorities is always gonna be, I wanna prepare my kids to be critical thinkers, and I'm already doing it, 90%, 95%, 99%. Then you ask employers, do these graduates have these skills, and 75% will tell them no. Okay, so yeah. that's why I said before, I think the class is half full, because it's not like teachers and professors are thinking critical thinking is unimportant, I don't want to teach it. It's stupid, right? Yeah, they all yeah. embrace the notion that's important. They're just using the wrong technique. It reminds so, me a lot of, um, there was, I forget what the book was now that I'm thinking about it. It was The Case Against Education. Brian Kaplan, I believe. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I think he speaks to a similar phenomenon of lots of employers want critical thinking skills, yet most employers are unsatisfied with the, I guess, degree that they find them within their employees. Mm-hmm. So, Again, I guess that leads us to the next point. So beyond education, how could you apply these concepts of critical thinking to, say, election year tribalism or pandemic politics? I mean, where do these ideas fit into a broader context? Because we, we've established that they're all well and good and we need to teach them in schools and currently are doing a rather piss poor job of it. Mm-hmm. So what what how are, why should we, you know, what are the broader implications? How can we apply these skills to your everyday life? You know, well, I think the reason we want to teach them is because they're universally applicable I know, to every situation, right? You mentioned COVID politics, right? This mm-hmm. is a relatively simple example I like, to, I like to use. Like if somebody says like, we've been locked down for months and COVID deaths are still going up, obviously social distancing is not working, right? There's some version of this argument is floating around in, in all sorts of communities, right? That's an argument, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, and probably you and I instinctively know something's wrong with it, but what's wrong with it? 
Whereas if you apply some critical thinking juice to it, you know, you'd sort of realize, well, that's an argument with a couple of premises. One premise says we've been locked down for months. Another premise says COVID deaths have been going up during that time. And so my conclusion is lockdown social distancing isn't working, right? That's an argument. Mm-hmm. So what's wrong with it? Well, the premises are not, there's nothing wrong with the premises, right? We have been locked down and deaths have been going up. The premises are true. You could fact check that argument all day and all night. You can mm-hmm. bring it to politifact, factcheck.org. You yeah. know, you, the facts check out. So there's nothing wrong with the premises. What's wrong is what I mentioned before, the warrant, the reasons mm-hmm. that connect those premises to the conclusion, right? And how do you how do you determine that? Well, let me just accept the premises as true, which is easy because they are true. We've been locked down for months. COVID deaths have been going up. Can I accept those premises and then also reject the conclusion that social distancing isn't work is not working. And I can easily reject that conclusion, right? Because I understand the whole point of lockdown was not to immediately end like virus infections. It was to mm-hmm. flatten the curve, to spread it out so we don't overwhelm the healthcare system. In fact, the very notion of flattening the curve means it's going to take longer to sort of, of get out of this, but it's worth doing that to not lead to needless deaths, right? So so I've just proven this argument is invalid. I've done it through two critical thinking skills. One is logical analysis. Well, three. One was language skills. I translated mm-hmm. this real-world argument into a set of premises leading conclusion. Then I applied logical skills. I determined the argument was invalid. And the way I was able to determine that argument was invalid is I applied another critical thinking skill, background knowledge, right? Unless I understood the point of flattening the curve, I wouldn't have understood why that argument was invalid, right? You could apply this to an election year campaign ad, an editorial, mm-hmm. newspaper editorial, what washing machine to buy, you know, should I take this job or not? Should I go into teaching? Yeah. You know, yeah. This tool set is universally applicable. I have a friend, have a friend. who often cites that the most meaningful course he ever took in in high school was he took a propaganda course he said it's the only class he ever learned something from and i'm assuming then that that class is essentially just a front for teaching critical thinking skills i mean he's looking at political ads he's looking at the 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 premise and the conclusions and he's looking at the evidence and i i would i would assume then that that might be the one class he found worthwhile because it's the one class that gave him a set of skills that he now uses every day so you would think then with an inability to agree on a consensus definition or our inability to figure out a way to apply this to curriculum that this idea, this notion of critical thinking must be a relatively new concept, right? But I, I again, have a hunch that it's not necessarily true. Is there a definite origin point where we see this idea of critical thinking showing up in academic literature around education or perhaps philosophy or whatever it might have been? Is there a... Is there a point where we, I know that we said that it has quite a few strands from different fields, but is there a point in education where it's formalized and someone says, this is what critical thinking is or hints at it at least? I, I love like, like, like revealing this because even like people who are like big champions of critical thinking education, you know, don't realize critical thinking has an origin point. It's 1910. 1910. You know, it's, it's like certainly philosophy, early science, you know, uh, psychology have informed critical thinking. But the first instantiation of the concept that there's a distinct form of thinking that could be termed critical 
was in a book written by John Dewey, you know, probably the most um, prominent uh, intellectual in the 20th century America, particularly well-known in education, you know, and, and I think, you know, you and I learned of each other through yeah, a discussion yeah. of John Dewey in another podcast. But uh, John Dewey wrote a book in 1910 called How We Think. You know, Dewey was a, was a, uh, a champion, almost a sort of religious believer in democracy. And he really believed uh, democratic citizens had certain roles and responsibilities. And one of them was to learn how to reason. And so in, in the book, How We Think, he sort of outlined what it means to think productively. And he came up with a definition. At the time, he referred to it as reflective thinking. Right. But it's everything we refer to now as critical thinking. And over the course of, of decades, the term just sort of morphed. But really, everybody talking about critical thinking in the last 110 years has been in dialogue with Dewey. That, that's really its origin point. And um, since then, you know, it's sort of gone up and down in interest. It's, there's been particular interest in it since the 1980s. Uh, definitions have become more sophisticated, but it's still fundamentally, you know, the same concept Dewey was talking about of sort of approaching the things we think about systematically. I found Dewey, of course, I think as many educators has, is a great inspiration, right? And um, the other person who I think has really um, had an impact on my my technique and my methodology and every, everything I do as a teacher would be would be Neil Postman. And so we have this idea from Dewey about reflective thinking, and this this idea builds into our current notion of critical thinking. But I, f I feel as though it's the importance has morphed so much from 1910, right? And this brings me to to Postman, who is again in 1910, Dewey's writing in what Postman would call a typographic society, right? Uh, the need for reflective thinking it's going to relate to the close reading and close analysis of written text and speeches and whatnot, but. How then does it apply to a to a digital society when most of our discourse is done in very these strange little chunks of forty five second spaces on YouTube mm -hmm. and whatnot? Is is there a is there a renewed importance that perhaps even Dewey couldn't have even comprehended at that time that the importance of critical thinking has not only grown but I I don't know if it's it must have changed in some way I can't imagine that. The, the importance Dewey saw for critical thinking is the same that it is now, if that makes any sense. Does that line of reasoning, how does that stick uh, with I, you? I might sort of uh, push back a little bit, I think, um, okay. without having another whole Dewey conversation. Um, yeah. People could. It was a, a partially examined life that, that we kind of mm -hmm. both kind of pseudo-met with each, with each other. Yeah. And that was a long sort of conversation about Dewey's philosophy. And, and Dewey was really about... Um, humans, uh, the human experience were not sort of isolated minds like Descartes thought. Uh, you know, we are creatures who are perpetually uh, adapting based on our interactions with one another and with the environment. He was hugely inspired by, um, by Darwin, for example. So he was not blind to the notion that one of the things we interact with is um, is media or, or information in different forms. And, and even in 1910, right, there was sort of different types of media emerging, sort of the commercial press. Uh, in his lifetime, he experienced radio. Uh, obviously, he didn't experience sort of computers and the internet, but I think the same phenomena, he would, you know, I'll channel him and say, you know, this notion that we as individuals form our identity through 
yes, through our own reflective thinking, but also through our own continual interaction with other people, with family members, with classmates, with other members of our society, and with other things in our environments. And of course, one of the big things in our environment now is uh, ubiquitous media. Mm -hmm. right? So, so I, to a certain extent, I would say the need for reflective, you know, critical thinking, systematic reasoning is all the more important, yeah, right? Yeah. Not just because media is shortened and people aren't necessarily engaging with long, complex task texts, although kind of longer form journalism is also thriving in certain aspects yeah, yeah. of the media. Um, so I wouldn't discount that. But I would say, you know, we certainly need to understand how to deal with media that's trafficking in images, particularly mm -hmm. images that might be keying into our emotion or our tribalism, particularly images where we don't really know where they originate, right? So a lot of news stories, if you look at the last five or 10 years, they originate in a tweet or a YouTube video, mm -hmm. sometimes of sort of questionable providence. So I think a critical thinker's job is to stop and say, well, you know, where, where does this material come from? Um, is it accurate, right? Can I, yeah, can yeah. I accept the premises behind it? Does it lead to the conclusion, right? If I see a, a video of a ghastly crime or something else, you know, should that lead to the conclusion someone's asking me to believe? So I'd say the critical thinking tool set is just as relevant, if not sort of more relevant than ever. Okay, um, so okay. you so would argue then that the toolkit from... The critical thinking toolkit in a typographic society and the critical thinking toolkit in an image-based society are not completely different because it is still about detecting the premise and if it leads you to a to a thoughtful and reasoned conclusion. I mean, you you have you always have to. One critical thinking tool is is language skills, right? You must translate real-world language into something structured so you can analyze it. Well, okay, yes, in 1910, you probably would be more likely to be translating a longer form editorial in a newspaper, yeah. right? Now you might be needing to translate a video or a Facebook post, but you still need to sort of go through that process. You so still the process to, remains. It's a, there's an argument in there, whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a bumper sticker or, you know, a sort of, of academic article, there's an argument in there and you need to be able to discern it. You need to be able to know what it is. And same thing with your students, right? You need to mm -hmm. teach them to understand what their argument is so they can then write the prose around it. Yeah. You know, the core of it is the argument. Um, so, yeah, so I would say, you know, what what is more challenging now, of course, is the ubiquitousness mm -hmm. of information and its speed, right? So by the time you and I could sit down and analyze an argument or a YouTube video or something and realize it's flawed, another thousand kind yeah. of books copies have shown up or, or the same one has been spread out virally across the planet. So I think we do face a challenge that, you know, it's the same old story, the truth needing the time to put its shoes on while falsehood can sort of run around the world a hundred times. Mm -hmm. Well, I think when that, that statement comes about, I, th I don't know if they quite imagined how quickly it will run around the world now. I mean, almost instantaneously. So, Speaking of just this total access to to information or disinformation that spreads quickly, something else I've been interested in your work, um, other than critical thinking, was what you did with the Degree of Freedom Project and the one-year BA. And 
uh, before I guess we get into talking about that more in depth for the listeners who might not be aware of that, um, could you kind of explain what it was and what you did and what the central idea was? Sure. Yeah, that was uh, 2013. I was doing some research into MOOCs, massive open online courses, which were free courses being given away by many of the top universities in the world uh, through a couple of companies, uh, notably edX and Coursera. Um, so you, know, you could take a free course from Harvard, online course, you could take a free course from Stanford. They often had tens of thousands of people in them. And there's a lot of, of writing the news, how these are going to be replacing college as we know it. They're going to shake higher education to its foundation, you know, yada, yada, yada. I'd heard a lot of that before. Mm -hmm. I'd taken a MOOC and I thought it was pretty good, but it wasn't like, you know, the be all and end all. I still don't yeah, know what yeah. it's like to be an undergraduate. And this course was fine, but it wasn't the equivalent. But I realized I'd just taken one course, right? So, mm -hmm. so I, I basically plunged in and decided I would take 32 courses in 12 months, the equivalent of a BA degree. I modeled it after my... Uh, BA degree when I was an undergraduate, although I changed my major, I did this, I took the degree as a, in philosophy versus um, um, science at the time. So basically every three months I took eight free courses from top universities. I wrote about it, I blogged about it, I podcast mm -hmm. about it, I uh, uh, you know wrote newsletters and articles and even ended up writing a book. Uh, my first book for MIT Press was on MOOCs. And, you know, as you know, like, Nobody could have done that without the internet, right? The internet is a wonderful thing. The notion that not just me, but people in Pakistan or Peru or, you know, rural Alabama could take a course from Yale for free, you yeah, know, yeah. is wonderful. It's wonderful that we all carry around like devices in our mm -hmm. pockets that let us um, look up information that used to take like days, weeks, or months to find, right? Yeah. It's, it's, the internet is a wonderful thing, but it comes at a cost. You know, it comes at a cost in terms of the speed at which inaccurate information can spread. It, it comes at a cost in terms of our attention spans and yeah. how we treat information, right? So I think one of the kind of hopefully benefits of becoming a critical thinking society, which is my mission, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah to try to push this, not just in education, but sort of wider is it will get us to sort of like take this magnificent bounty of data we have with us and learn to do the right thing with it, which is to think about it, think about it well, think about it systematically, you know, not just take it for granted or assume it's correct. Yes, it, this is how it feels like a prerequisite for living in the digital age is that you should have and possess these skills because otherwise, through everything on your phone is just, it feels almost impossible, this insurmountable task. But going back to, to, to uh, talking about the MOOCs, when you were, when you say you could take a course from Yale or a course from Harvard online, what, what's the difference between that and me turning on a, a series of lectures on the great courses or something like that? What, is, there a, is there a difference or essentially the same thing? No, it's a great question because I think a... A lot of people were experimenting with courses that leveraged video or podcasts or, you know, a whole bunch of other medium media. I think, you know, where the MOOCs kind of had a uh, carved out a distinctive niche for themselves is they really were courses. You know, you had a, a 
sequence of lessons over the course of several weeks. You had, yes, the lectures were recorded. They were normally video lectures, you know, but you also had readings. You also had quizzes, you know, not particularly great quizzes. That's, you know, one of my, my first jobs working in MOOCs was helping Harvard um, get their assessment act together to make those quizzes sort of meaningful or the assignments meaningful. But they gave a try to make it sort of the equivalent of a semester long course. Now, over time, they sort of said, well, why does that have to be a semester long course? Why can't it be a half semester long course or a shorter course? But it was still meant to be a course. It was still meant to be something other than passive absorption of information. I think with now, a podcast, and I know you've talked about this a lot in, in, in the past, like a podcast, you know, great courses, videos or audios, they're terrific, you know, they're great source of information, but they're sort of one component of a course. They're the pedantic equivalent of a, of a lecture. Um, so I think where there may be a sort of still some plenty of room to play is where do you bridge that gap between educational resources, which I think podcasts are. Podcasts are generally following the OER, Open Educational Resource category, that teachers can use to construct educational experiences and maybe even entire courses. But they're probably not a course yet in and of themselves. Yeah, but I would yeah. say nor were, you know, MOOCs were, uh, I had a very good experience with them, but I think my ultimate conclusion, they were not the equivalent of a residential college course, largely because things that you take for granted in a residential course, interaction with other students, uh, robust discussion, you know, either mm -hmm. in class or in the coffee shop afterwards, were, were missing. Those, those now, pieces now, weren't there. Were, were these MOOCs based off, off of, of existing courses, like translations of, or were they just solely put on this platform and they were made for that platform? Most of them originated in existing residential courses because uh, most of them originated in higher ed institutions, right? Yeah. You had to um, be a higher ed institution to join a consortium like an edX or a Coursera. So the natural thing they gravitated to was um, taking courses that already existed. You know, like for, there's a famous course at Harvard called the Ancient Greek Hero. It's been taught for 40 years plus by the same professor. It's a wonderful course. Whole generations have gone through it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was one of the first courses that went on to Harvard X. Um, similar, you know, you have a professor who's teaching a very popular course in astronomy or, you know, relativity. And they sort of ported that over to MOOCs. But over time, what I found was that MOOCs are developing their own sort of language mm -hmm. of, of educational. It wasn't just, you can't just point the camera at the professor, record the lecture, and then, you know, maybe throw a few quizzes in there. You have to kind of reconstruct the nature of the course, you know, break your video into shorter segments, yeah. um, integrate sort of assignments and activities for, for students to do within the course. In fact, it's exactly the same thing that I imagine teachers like you are discovering now that you can't just do exactly what you did in the classroom yeah, yeah. <laughs> online. It's a different modality. It's a different mm -hmm. sort of pedagogy. It, it's exactly that point then that, so you did this, a lot of this research and uh, you took all of those courses you said in 2013? 2013, yeah. Have you ever thought about revisiting it post-COVID? How have these things evolved and changed over the last seven years? Have you followed up at all or has that been a thought you've had? Oh, yeah. No, I, I haven't been super in-depth in it because I've yeah. been doing other things since, but certainly been following MOOCs. And personally, you know, they're nowhere near as uh, in the news as they were in 2013. I mean, 2013, Tom Friedman was writing them about mm -hmm. them every week. 
which itself should have told us that like this is a phenomenon that's about to go away. Uh, but I, I find books are much more interesting now mm -hmm. than they were then because they've yeah. had six years to evolve outside of the spotlight, right? So people are doing a lot of experimentation with courses that you know might not have 30,000 people in them, but might have 3,000 people in them. So you can't do exactly what you could do in a residential course, but you could do much more interesting experiments going on. And, and in fact, I've got some colleagues who've written about innovation in higher education and, and also about how innovation organizations at colleges, which bring in instructional designers and assessment specialists, you know, to many colleges, that's what colleges have been turning to as they deal with the COVID crisis, as they deal with professors who had just no idea how to teach online, you know, suddenly yeah, yeah. they have to be taught, well, you can't just lecture at them for an hour and 20 minutes. You've got to, you've got to break things up. You've got to do things in a different way. And to a certain extent, you know, that knowledge might not have been part of the higher ed ecosystem if it weren't for MOOCs. Um, so, and as a, you know, a side note, a colleague of mine who's still at Harvard X said, MOOCs suddenly shot up to the same level of popularity they were in 2013 this year mm -hmm. because of COVID. People are yeah, like yeah. registering, taking them. And yeah, so I, I think they were, were, were oversold in terms of uh, their transformational nature yeah, in higher yeah. ed. But I would say they have had a transformational impact on in higher ed. So, so noting, noting then our line, line of thinking line. from MOOCs to talking about critical thinking skills and now talking about how education is kind of being shaped post-introduction um, of COVID, um, what do you see then as the role of things like podcasts and YouTube channels and other new media platforms in public discourse and education? How do, how do these things relate to our relationship with critical thinking? How do they relate to our discussions around education? I mean, where do you see these things playing a role in digital education? Well, you know, it's I write a lot about education and, and a lot of my kind of writing ideas tend to always boil down to the importance of the teacher, right? You know, you teaching like high school, the college professor, that it's fundamentally my my belief is that if we sort of super empower the teacher, mm. you know, they will figure out what the best resources are to accomplish the goals they have for students. And, and some of those resources might be podcasts, right? Some of them might be YouTube videos. Some mm. of them might be MOOCs or components of MOOCs. Some of them might be conventional lecture, right? But what, what we've learned now with COVID, right, is that um, most teachers have not been prepared to teach remotely. I, th I don't think there's a whole bunch of debate about that, right? In the yeah. spring, um, teachers had to sort of rush into it. College professors had to rush into it. And everybody did their best, but nobody was really particularly happy with the results, right? In theory, we should have prepared all summer mm -hmm. to get ready for the fall. But in reality, that's not how it works, right? That, that you know, teachers, college professors are not ready to spend their whole summer getting ready to teach properly in the fall, nor were the resources there to teach them. But, you know, in, in many cases, there were opportunities, right? I've been doing some work with law professors, helping them prepare uh, for the, the fall. I've uh, been doing some work with K-12 teachers uh, to sort of learn online how to do this. So, you know, but, but fundamentally, I think what it really boils down to is how do we get a generation of teachers, your, your generation of teachers, uh, to 
kind of not just understand different teaching modalities, but different sort of pedagogical principles and how they could be applied, right? If, if, if all teachers understood, okay, well, you know, I'm, I need to start out with a set of learning goals, mm -hmm. right? Um, I need to understand how those learning goals have been accomplished, meaning I need some way of evaluating. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily need to be like a formal multiple choice assessment, right? It could be project-based learning yeah. that has an assessment component, but that means that's something teachers need to learn how to do. You know, how do we string together learning experiences? How do we differentiate learning for different type of learners? And, you know, and, and I should note, you know, K-12 teachers like yourself are way better positioned to do this even than college professors, right? Did, did You went to a teacher prep program or teacher ed program? Yeah. Yes, I did. Yeah. You know, so uh, you have more preparation to be a teacher than the entire faculty of the Ivy League. Yeah. Like, they don't, they don't learn uh, pedagogical principles. They don't learn classroom management. They don't learn, you know, the whole variety of skills that you were taught. Um, so I, I guess in my thinking, and, and all that's valuable, but even those skills, right, classroom management, uh, planning, those are both useful, those are all useful, but they're not enough, as we learned with this crisis, right, there's, you need to understand um, additional principles, you know, principles of how do you differentiate, differentiate, differentiate learning mm -hmm. in blended environments or in fully remote environments, yeah. right, there's a whole group of things, but, so I, I guess my thought is, if teachers were adequately prepared through their training programs, but also through professional development, if college professors had any kind of professional development on how to teach that wasn't just voluntary, right? You've got many wonderful professors who are naturally skilled at it. You have some who gravitated to learning sort of of teaching and learning skills, but it's not sort of acquired to be a college professor. If everybody could understand these sort of, of standard sort of pedagogical techniques, then we'd have a basis to kind of, of enter these, this blended learning world we're in right now, mm -hmm. right? Where some people are in school, some people out of school. It's going to change probably sometime over the course of this year or at least over the next two years. And, and frankly, I think that would also be the mechanism to, in, in, to um, infuse critical thinking instruction into education, right? If, if this infusion method that you and I were just talking about was part of methods courses in every teacher preparation program in the country. Well, over the course of, you know, five, 10 years, we get a generation of teachers who just naturally understood that, like, if I want to teach critical thinking, I have to do it. I actually have yeah, to like, yeah. specifically teach it, you know, so and I, learn how to do it. I guess it's, I'm going to go a little off the cuff here, and I, I, oh, I have you. I want to get your opinion on a few things. Um, for example, when I was planning out my class for this year, I'm looking at all of the um, all of the content that I, I must cover and whatnot, and I'm, I'm looking at what different activities I have in my head, and I develop a, a basic set of, I guess, critical thinking skills that will be applicable to most lessons that I'm going to introduce, mm -hmm. and I so I put that on my syllabus and I explicitly tell my students, I'm like, listen, these are each of the thought processes I will teach you throughout the year. I want to make you aware of them now. And we're going to do this and this. And, you know, I, we looked at inference and observation and um, evaluation. And I said, these are the various skills we will use throughout the year. And then when I go to teach them, I, I tell them every single day, these are the ones we use today. And it, but it, it feels almost 
pedantic might be the word like this is the skill we are going to use i'm having to bring that one out but is is that as in your experience the 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 best way to do that is you introduce the skill you tell them this is the skill we will use today and now we are going to practice it with this content so i've taken it to where i always felt like most k-12 through teachers are teaching content explicitly and hoping that critical thinking is implicit. And I'm like, well, what happens if I take those two and I kind of flip them where I'm explicitly teaching critical thinking and then the content becomes implicit in that as my background set of examples and topics to pull from and discuss? Is that is that infusion or is that something else entirely? I, I think you're, you're well on the right track. You know, okay. I think, um, you know, I, I think different teachers teaching different subjects can play with it different ways, right? You've made the critical thinking skills explicit and the organizing structure of your course and mm -hmm. the content fits into that. And, you know, that's great. Someone else might want to teach the content, but just at key moments when a critical thinking skill is highly relevant, they'll bring that into the mix. That geometry example I gave you, you know, is that's a perfect time to teach deductive reasoning. Um, whereas you don't necessarily need to teach deductive reasoning when you're teaching subtraction or fractions. So, so I think, you know, the key point is whenever you teach critical, if you're, your priorities in critical thinking, A, you need to know what it is, right? And all mm -hmm. those lists of skills you mentioned, that's it. Those are them. So you need to know what they are. So it means first, you know, anchor principle as a teacher has to be a critical thinker themselves. In other words, they have to understand these principles. Second is you want to infuse it into the curriculum versus just assume students get it through immersion. And you're doing that. Um, you know, I'd say you probably want to play with a little bit about like, do I need this every single time or which critical thinking yeah, skills yeah. Is, is important at this moment, but that's, you know, you've done that over time. I, I've actually created a set of, of eight, what I call high leverage critical thinking teaching practices. They're on my site, degreeoffreedom.org. And, you know, you are doing number one and number two of them. You know, there are others mm -hmm. that you might want to consider, you know, for instance, you know, when I talked about that three-part model, like um, knowledge, skills, and dispositions, um, skills are really developed through practice, you know, deliberate practice. And it sounds like you're probably doing that, but I think to be very deliberate about your deliberate practice that, you know, mm -hmm. when your students are getting ready to write a history paper, don't use an outline, for example, use yeah, an argument yeah. map or some kind of informal argument, you know, and then really give them a chance to practice that, have them practice that on very simple arguments, have them practice that on more complicated arguments, have to do it with, with scaffolding, have them do it on their own. Um, so those are the kind of deliberate practice exercise. That's an important practice. Which feels, like, feels a like a very dewy thing to say. You learn, you know, essentially what you do. And so it makes sense that you must do this. I mean, you want to get good at cooking, you have to cook. If you want to learn how to change a tire, you have to change tires repeatedly. You want to learn how to use critical thinking skills. You must use critical thinking skills. It almost makes too much sense. Well, it's a skill. You yeah, know, it's like you can and learn. Any skill needs practice. Exactly. You could learn the principles of informal logic, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I could teach it to somebody in a couple hours, right? Yeah. I could teach it to them in depth in a couple days. But to get really good at it, that's a dirty secret of critical thinking. The actual knowledge you need is, is relatively small. It's much less than the amount of history you teach. It's much less than the amount of, um, you need to learn to learn biology or math, right? But it is a set of skills. You do need to understand what they are. You do need to learn them. Um, and, you know, so, but once you teach them, 
that doesn't take much time. What takes a lot of time is practicing them. Yeah. Okay. And I'd say the other thing you should consider doing is another high leverage practice I refer to as inspiration, right? Because there's one theory, one researcher claims that critical thinking is similar to sports or music. It takes 10,000 hours to get good at, mm. right? And, and that whole 10,000 hour model is not even necessarily what the person who, who proposed that was talking yeah. about. Malcolm Gladwell got some shit for that one. <laughs> well, yeah, Gladwell sort of popularized it, but the original research did not say, you know, yeah. 9,900 hours, you, you stink, you know, 10,000, you're great. You yeah. know, but the point is that it takes many more hours than you will have with your students. Mm -hmm. It's probably many more hours than all the teachers will have with their students, even if all they were teaching was critical thinking skills, which of course they're not. So the one of the things to do is to inspire your students to understand, oh, wait, you know, I had to make a personal decision. I used the critical thinking toolkit, right? I used, mm -hmm. you know, language skills and logic and I, I made a better choice. Wow. Yeah. You know, that was better for me. Maybe I'll use it again. Oh, I used it and I got an A in, in you know, your, your class. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, I used it and I got an A in some other class. I made a better decision on where to go to school. I controlled for my biases, so I didn't just go to the school that the weather was nice when I visited, you know, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. You know, that creates a sort of a virtuous cycle where people will practice it on their own. So you, you should give them the tools to, and the understanding of what it means to practice it on their own. But you also yeah. inspire them to say, by the way, you know, you're going to do not just better in my class, you'll do better in life if you apply these. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's an area you could sort of, as you sort of shake out your practices, which sounds like you're doing a great job at, like that's where you could sort of grow into is um, inspiring kids to sort of do this on their own. Which is fun, funny because very similarly to critical thinking skills, another thing most schools will say they want to do is create lifelong learners, but what they typically end up doing is having students swear off reading for the rest of their lives or something like that. Speaking of reading, and um, I know we've referenced uh, your, your newest your newest work, Critical Thinking, and we also uh, talked about your work around the MOOCs. You said um, something very early in our conversation about you have a book that's being re-released now for the upcoming election. Uh, what, I'm sorry, I don't think I completely caught that. What were you talking about? Oh, yeah, that, that's um, actually my my first book on critical thinking is now my latest book on critical thinking. It's called Critical Voter. Okay. And it was actually originated as a podcast. As a matter of fact, during the 2012 election, I created a curriculum on how to use the 2012 election to learn critical thinking skills. Mm -hmm. And that's where I devised a lot of the kind of how-to material on critical thinking, on logic, on language skills, rhetoric, um, argumentation, but also bias and, and media and information literacy. Uh, so I took that podcast and I turned it into a book in 2016, okay. where I, I stripped it. I, well, I didn't strip it, but I, it wasn't exclusively about one election. It used election politics generally to teach critical thinking skills. And, um, you know, Obviously, the results of that election have left a lot of people befuddled. I think it's it's got a lot of educators and organizations really curious about you know what's what's gone wrong. You know that's why we're having this conversation. Why aren't we kind of thinking through our problems in mm -hmm. some kind of reasonable way? Why are we thinking emotionally? Why are we thinking with our gut? Um, and this is a sort of nonpartisan complaint. This is across the board. Yeah. And so I decided. Um, Given the state of things, I would re-release Critical Voter uh, with some updated updated case studies, still largely the same principles I'm mm -hmm. teaching. So yeah, that'll be out um, 
you know, hopefully beginning of next week, actually. Awesome. Uh, you know, this will be out. So, yeah, I'll, we'll be dropping this episode very shortly after we do it. So I will put um, a link in the description for anyone that would want to get to Critical Voter, your book on MOOCs, uh, Critical Thinking, all of that. Um, this has been a good conversation. I have a feeling that most of my listeners are going to get something out of it. Or that might be selfish. I might be putting myself onto my listeners because I got a lot out of it as as an educator. So thank you again for coming on. I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, totally loved uh, loved talking with you. And uh, good luck with your mission. I really um, enjoyed your podcast and and love all the work that you and, and the network you're part of are doing. So uh, we're all part of the same team. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, we'll, um, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, take care.